Um, again, a number of people have actually come and spoken to me about it, and, and, and it seems like the spirit has been has been, been pricking consciences and, and dealing with uh, with hearts um, on these things. And if if you are are again, I would, would really encourage you to, to talk to somebody about it if you're if the Lord has been exposing sin on your heart and, and to, to talk to, to confess it to Him and confess it to other people you've sinned against. But but because there be people interested, I've actually got a few resources here that I can recommend that are really helpful um, in, in dealing with um, in, in dealing with anger. And I'm not read all of them, but but this one here, um, um, the meekness and quietness of spirit by Matthew Henry. He was a, was a Puritan who wrote the Matthew Henry commentary. He's talking he's talking about putting off um, anger and, and putting on meekness or uh, humility and, and quietness of spirit. Um, this is a new book by, by David Powelson. I've quoted him several times, but we continue to quote him. Good and angry. Um, and then we see that, that you can be good and still angry. And this one, Uprooting Anger, um, by Robert Jones. And, uh, and this one is, is uh, maybe familiar to more of you. It's called the, the Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. And it talks about how you can be somebody who is a person of, of peace um, in your own life, in the lives of, of those around you by... Um, by being used of God. The Bible says that, uh, and Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called the children of God. And so, so these are all helpful. If you'd like to take a look, um, you can't borrow this one because I'm not, I'm not reading it, I'm not finished it yet. But um, if you'd like to borrow um, one of these, you're, you're welcome to it. Yeah, let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, that although you are full of wrath for sin, Lord, you are also full of grace and forgiveness and love for sinners. Sinners like us sitting here this morning. Lord, I, I pray that, that in the power of your Holy Spirit that you will impress upon our hearts the glories of the salvation that we have received in Christ Jesus, the magnitude of your forgiveness towards us, of your love towards us in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would impress that upon our hearts. And, and Lord, for those who are, are here who are not born again, I pray, Lord, that you would impress it on their hearts that they, might, that they might repent unto salvation. For those of us who are here who, who are truly born again but, but still struggle with, with sinful anger, as we all do to a certain degree, I pray, Lord, that, that you would help us too to walk in repentance and faith, that you would help us Help us all, Lord, to put off sinful anger and to put on forgiveness and love as a reflection of the forgiveness and love that we have received in Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. When Jesus explained the process of, of church discipline in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, uh, the apostle Peter was, was troubled and, and came to Jesus and asked him a question. But it wasn't the question that you might think. The question that he asked actually had to do with the discipline itself. He said, he said Lord, how many times should, should my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said, no, not up to seven times, but up to 77 times. And, and some translations say up to 70 times seven times. But what he's saying here is that, is that you need to forgive immensely. That, that there is really no limit to the depths of 
how we should forgive our brothers. And in order to illustrate that, he, he told the parable of the unforgiving servant. And, and you know this parable well. This is the, the parable of, a, of a, a man who went before the king and he, owned, he owed the king an insurmountable debt. It would take a lifetime to pay off that debt. The king graciously forgave him. And then as that servant went out, instead he found a, a servant that, that owed him really a pittance in comparison, about a month's salary, about a month's wages in comparison. And he throttled that servant, that other servant, and said that, that I'm going to cast, he had him cast into prison until he should pay it off. And when the, the king found out about, about this, this first servant and, and how unforgiving he was, even though he had been forgiven so much, he had that first servant in turn cast into prison until he could pay off that debt. And he could never pay off that debt. If the people closest to you were to describe you, how would they describe you? And I don't mean when they describe you as, as tall or short or as, as, as thin or not so thin or, or hairy or or follically challenged? I mean, how would they describe your character? How would they describe your character? Would they describe you as someone who is Christ-like? Or would they describe you as someone who is worldly? Now, we know that, that nobody's perfect, but would the people who are closest to you, who know you best, would they describe you as someone who is growing in Christ-like character, who's, who's becoming more and more progressively sanctified, and, and that it's evident in the, their lives that they're growing in Christ-likeness? Or would they instead describe you as someone who is stagnant in their sanctification, or as, as somebody who doesn't really appear to be growing at all? As time goes on, do you look more and more like Jesus, or do you look more and more like the world? It's an important question. It's a vital question. Because if you aren't growing in Christ, if you aren't becoming more like Christ, you need to ask yourself an even more important question. You need to ask yourself, am I a Christian? Do I really belong to Christ? You may have been in church for many years. You might have been baptized, you might be a church member, but none of those things make you a Christian. None of those things make you a Christian. I've, I've talked to, to, to numerous people, old friends who I've been in touch with, and, 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 and they had appeared to be, to be Christians for a time, but, but they walked away. They walked away from the faith. And, and as you as, as you look back, and I know hindsight is 20-20, you can really see that, that in most of those cases, these are people who really weren't growing even back then. A Christian is someone who is trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for their sins. But a Christian is also a follower of Christ. A Christian is an imitator of Christ. In the call to worship, we read 1 John 2, 28, 2, 3, 24. And, and John there says that everyone who makes a practice, uh, who practices righteousness has been born of God. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. So is your life characterized by obedience to Christ? Or is your life characterized by, by wicked behavior? 
John presses the, the point further. He says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In 1 John, that is one of the, the key tests. There's, there's others. There's the, the doctrine test and the obedience test and the love of God test. But he says, if you do not love your brother, your brother in Christ, your sister in Christ, you are not a Christian. In the first half of Ephesians, Paul explains that, that you were separated from Christ and you were separated from God's people. But now in Christ you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ is our peace. He has broken down the, that wall of hostility that divided us between God, and He has also broken down the wall of hostility that divided us that divided us from our brothers and sisters in Christ, so that we have been reconciled to God in one body. And there specifically he's talking about Jew and Gentile, but it's true of all Christians, that all Christians for all time have been reconciled to God in one body. So I want to ask the question, the question that you need to be asking yourself, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Well, in Ephesians 4, Paul urges you to walk like one. He describes the glory of your calling in the first three chapters of the epistle, the, the glorious saving work that has been done for us in Christ. We, we saw that again and again, those, those first three chapters. And he says, you've been blessed in Christ. You've been chosen in Christ. You've been adopted in Christ. You have an inheritance in Christ. The same power that was at work in Jesus, raising him from the dead, is also at work in you if you are in Christ. Even though you're dead in trespasses and sins, God has made you alive together with Christ. You were raised with Christ. You were seated with Christ in the heavenly places. By grace, you have been saved. Those who have experienced that love and forgiveness, those who have experienced the love and forgiveness of God will demonstrate the love and forgiveness of God. So this passage, Ephesians 5, verse 4, verse 32 to 5, 2, tells us that what those who are reconciled to God look like. They're those who are putting off sinful attitudes and behavior and are putting on righteous attitudes and behavior. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been focusing specifically on anger, putting off unrighteous anger and putting on righteous anger and putting on love and forgiveness. So we'll see that pattern here this morning. We, we focused last time in, in verse, down to verse 31, talked about putting off anger. We're going to quickly review that this morning, and then we'll talk about what it looks like to put on love. And we're going to talk about why. So put off anger. We exhibit righteous anger when we are motivated for the, by the right reasons and we respond in the right way. We display this kind of anger, righteous anger, when we are motivated by the love of God and by the love of others. When we respond prayerfully, when we respond proactively. But we all have to admit that this isn't the kind of anger that we usually exhibit. Instead, we often exhibit sinful anger. We're motivated by selfishness. We take personal offense. We, we overreact. We don't deal with that anger, but we, we stew on it. We chew on it. 
And in so doing, we give the devil an open door. In verse 31, Paul gives us a picture of the progression of anger as he tells us to get rid of it, to put it off. He says that all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now these, these forms of anger grow in intensity from, from the inward emotion to seething, to shouting, to abusive language, to slander, to deep-seated hatred. So unresolved anger leads to an attitude of bitterness, that, that sharp resentment in your thoughts that to, then it, towards the, the offending person. This often leads to wrath, the, the, the intense emotional outburst. There's, there's that abiding state of seething anger. And then it comes out of your mouth in the form of clamor, yelling or screaming. And in slander, where you, where you, you spread vicious lies about a, a person. This is murder with your tongue. And this in turn leads to malice, that, that hateful feeling. It's murder in your heart. It's the progression of anger. But some people, as we talked about last week, they, they can jump almost immediately to the most, most violent and aggressive forms of anger in the, in the blink of an eye. And others habitually exhibit one or, or more of these in, a, in, in regular patterns. So anger isn't just blind rage. You get grumpy. Are you sarcastic, using humor to cut others down? Are you moody? Do, do you have a critical spirit? Do you get cold towards other people? Do, do you tell others about something that someone else has done instead of going to them and going to God? So whatever form sinful anger takes in your life, Paul is telling you to put it away from you, to put it far away from you. We talked about how sinful anger spreads. So we need to guard against that bitterness. We need to guard against it before it takes root and defiles many. So if you, see, if you see bitterness or an unresolved anger in someone else, you need to deal with that first and foremost by praying for them. And then when it's appropriate, go to them to, to talk to them about it. If you see that anger in yourself, deal with it before you destroy yourself and those around you. Otherwise, you're going to destroy your friendships. You're going to destroy your family. You're going to destroy your church. But by putting off sinful anger, you can be a peacemaker in your own life and in the lives of those around you. So how then? How do you put off sinful anger? We all have to admit that, that sinful anger comes easily. It comes naturally to us. When kids start displaying it soon after the born, I don't, I don't know if, if the cross boys have started to, to, to develop, to exhibit it yet, but they will very soon. But quite often, the, the anger that, that, that we see in adults is just really childish anger that has just never been resolved, it's never been dealt with. Now, Jane was telling me yesterday about a, a man who was on a, on, a, on a bus on Highway 97, and, and the, the bus driver um, didn't see his bus pass, and so she asked him, can I see your bus pass? And, and when, she didn't, when he didn't respond, she said it again, and he walked up to her on the bus, this is on Highway 97, while the bus was moving, and he walked up to her and said, I'm going to punch you in the head. So this man punched this female bus driver in the head on a moving bus. And then she managed to get the bus over to the side of the road, and he stepped on her as he, as he jumped out the window of the, bus's, of the bus driver's window. 
And Jane said, this is just like a, like a, like a, a sinful little child who was not, it, it was throwing a temper tantrum, it was just never resolved it. But as we get bigger, the, the potential for damage becomes much greater. But I wonder how often our sinful behavior is just like a, a child's temper tantrum. And issues that have just never been resolved in our hearts. So how do you stop getting sinfully angry? Well, the first step in stopping doesn't start with you. The first step in stopping sinful anger does not start with you. It starts with the Lord. Remember, Paul is talking to Christians here. The first step to dealing with sinful anger is being born again. It's having a new heart. It's, it's when the, the Holy Spirit regenerates you, when, when He sovereignly takes that heart of stone out of you and gives you a heart of flesh and changes your desires from rebellion against God to love of God and worship of God. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, but an unbeliever can't stop. An unbeliever can't stop being sinfully angry. They're just revealing the idolatry of their hearts. But even if they're able to control external expressions of anger, they still have that same deep-seated anger problem deep within. But we have to acknowledge, don't we, that, that even though as Christians we have new hearts, we still have to contend with sin. We still have to contend with sin. Remember, I quoted last week, John Calvin saying that the human heart is an idol factor. And that the, the anger in our hearts, or the anger rather that, that we express, is a reflection of the anger that's within our hearts. It's still there even though we have new hearts. It's like as Martin Luther said, we are simul justice a peccator. That's Latin meaning at the same time justified and a sinner. You are at the same time justified and a sinner. As a Christian, you have a new and a righteous nature, but you also have a sinful nature. This is that already, not yet, that we talk about so often. So, so the first step to dealing with sinful anger is to be born again. God does that. The second step, the second step that we need to undertake, we see God's work and we also see our work. God works and we work. We put off sinful attitudes and behavior and put on righteous attitudes and behavior. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God does it and we participate with God in the power of the Holy Spirit to, to bring about that change in our life. And here Paul is following the pattern that he's been talking about for several verses. It's the principle that we see all through the, the New Testament. Put off, put on. Put off, put on, and then he tells us why. So those things that he just spoke about in, in verse 31 are to be put off and to be replaced by the attributes that he talks about in verse 32. These, these attributes are the opposite of those that he spoke about in verse 31. He says in verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And in, in 5.2 he says, walk in love. So we're told to put off bitterness, to put off wrath, to put off anger, to put off slander, to put off malice, and instead to put on kindness, to put on tenderheartedness, to put on forgiveness, and to put on love. 
So first of all, put on kindness. Kindness is, is love in practical action. It's looking for ways to encourage someone, looking for ways to serve someone, looking for ways to serve, to, to care for someone. And it talks about putting on tender-heartedness. The, the, the heart is considered to be the, the seat of the emotions. In the, uh, it's actually literally translated um, bowels of mercies. Bowels of mercies. I'm really glad that, that they've shifted to the sense of the heart because Valentine's Day, if someone's going to give you a card with a bowel on it, it probably wouldn't be too pretty. But, but the heart is considered the seat of the emotions. And so to be tender-hearted means to be affectionate. It means to be compassionate towards another person. And to put on forgiveness. Put on forgiveness means, was well, obviously the opposite of, of unforgiveness. It means to, in general, it means to, it speaks of being gracious, um, but in this context, it means to graciously pardon another for wrongdoing. To graciously pardon another for wrongdoing. And then finally, put on love in verse 2. It says, walk in love. This means to have warm affections for the person, but it isn't just a feeling. Love isn't just a feeling. We, we see that very clearly in 1 Corinthians 13. That the DC Talk sings a song, love is a verb. It's, it's an action. It's, it's a doing. So in this, in this context, love means to love others sacrificially. And we'll, we'll deal with that in a moment. But you can see how each of these is the express opposite of sinful anger. And so whereas the, the culmination of sinful anger is malice, it's deep-seated hatred, love is deep-seated, a sense of deep-seated care and concern for another person that, that works itself out in practical deeds of, of service to another. And love is the, the central command that... that that really subsumes all of those others. It, it, it subsumes kindness and tenderheartedness and, and forgiveness. And it also subsumes those, those things that Paul had talked about uh, back in the beginning of, of chapter 4 with humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and, and eagerness to maintain unity. It's, it's all under the banner of love. So we put off anger. We put on love. I'm going to talk more about love in a few minutes, but, but first I want to focus on forgiveness. Look there at the end of verse, four, uh, verse 32. It says, You are to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. To forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so that provides the why. We've seen the put off, we've seen the put on, and now this is the why. Well, the, the first the first reason why, as we see it here, is, is by invoking the forgiveness that you have received, you are reminded that you are to forgive one another because God in Christ forgave you. And so that's the sense here, to, to think about, at least in a, initially, to think about, about all that we've been forgiven of by God in Christ. And then so out of that forgiveness to forgive one another. So what has God forgiven you of? Just stop and think about it for a moment. Think even just for a moment about the sins that you've committed in the past week. For 
even one of them, God would be perfectly just to cast you into hell for all eternity. For just one sin. If we don't understand that, we do not understand the holiness of God. God is infinitely holy. He is infinitely glorious. And so every sin that we commit, we commit against the infinite God. And so every single sin that we commit is infinitely sinful. It is infinitely wicked. But that's just, just the sins of, just one sin, or even just the sins of this past week. What about the sins of the past month? Or the sins of the past year? Let alone, what about the sins that you committed before coming to Christ? We have been forgiven so much. Before we came to Christ, every word that came out of our mouths was sin. Every breath that we took was sin. I'm not exaggerating here. Listen to Paul's indictment of the human race from Romans 3, verses 10 to 18. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That was me and that was you. That was our rap sheet. That was our criminal record. But just jump, jump down now for a moment to, for, to just down to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and hear this, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put, put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. <coughs> this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. If you are in Christ, your criminal record has been cleared. God has taken that list, that huge list, that insurmountable list of all the things that you have ever done, and has erased your name from the top of it, and has put Christ's name on that list. But not only that, not only that, he, he has taken the, the list of all the good things, that, that unbelievably good list of, of things that Jesus did, all those obedience that Jesus did, and he has put your name on the top of that list. So he has taken your sin and he has given it to his son. He's taken the son's righteousness and he's given it to you. That cup of wrath that, that we spoke to the, the, to the kids about, Jesus drank it down to the dregs for you and for me. Do you deserve that kind of forgiveness? Now think about that person that you're angry at. They might not deserve your forgiveness. They might not deserve it either. But you can forgive because God in Christ forgave you. 
And so the, the key to dealing with unrighteous anger is forgiveness. It's first receiving the forgiveness of God, and then it's extending that forgiveness to others. Those who have experienced the love and forgiveness of God will demonstrate the love and forgiveness of God. And so as you can see, this is, this is not just the why, but it's also the how. Right? It's not just why we do it, but we also it's the how. We, we are able to do it because of the gospel. We're, reminded to, we're empowered to forgive others when we preach the gospel to ourselves, when we remind ourselves of all that we have been forgiven of. So, so it's the why and the how, but it's also the how much. Jesus told the parable of the unforgiving servant in response to Peter's question of how many times should I forgive my brother? And, and so this was, is an insurmountable debt that that servant had been forgiven of. And so what, what that's saying is, is the debt that we owe, the debt that you owe, the debt that I owe was insurmountable. You and I could never pay that back. Even if we were to never sin for the rest of our lives, even if we were to obey God perfectly, we could never pay back the debt that we owe to God. So this gives us the how much. We need to remember that any sin, any sin that, that's committed against us is really ultimately committed against God. No matter how grievous it is, no matter how horrific that sin is, it is tiny compared to the sin that has been committed against God. How much would be too much for you to forgive? In 1980, 16-year-old Debbie Morris was out on her date with her boyfriend, Mark Brewster. They got a milkshake and they went to the riverfront to enjoy it together when two gunmen jumped into the car. I'm not going to go into the details, but, but Mark was tortured and killed. And Debbie was horribly abused. Three days earlier, these same men had tortured and killed another young woman. But Debbie was, was able to get free. And the man who, the man who killed her, who killed her boyfriend and, and abused her, one of them got the death penalty. He was, was given the electric chair. There's a, there's a movie about it called um, Dead Man Walking. And she was able to forgive the man who had killed her boyfriend. She was able to forgive the men who had abused her. How? How could she possibly do that? She did that because she knew the forgiveness of God, because she had experienced the forgiveness of Christ. So that, that thing that you think would be too great for you to forgive, if you are a Christian, there is no sin that is too great for you to forgive because there was no sin that you committed that was too great for God to forgive you. So how much, how much are you willing to forgive? Is there anybody that you are sinfully angry at right now? Is there anyone that you personally need to forgive? Maybe it's that person that you're thinking of right now. You need forgiveness for your failure to forgive. And so repent and God will forgive you. And out of the depths of that forgiveness that you have received, then forgive others. 
You might have to do it again and again and again. Forgiveness isn't just a one-shot deal. Quite often we have to, you have to forgive somebody for the same sin again and again because it still comes back into your heart. Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The unforgiving servant didn't end up forgiven. Don't be like the unforgiving servant. Put off sinful anger and put on love. But finally, I want us to see in, in, with the section of, of forgiveness that the command to forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you has another why. There's another why here as well. And this is actually the why that Paul is aiming at. He says, when he says forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you, he's not just saying forgive one another because God and Christ has forgiven you, but he's, he's, that word here that's translated as means more than because. It means just as or in the same way. So he's saying forgive one another in the same way as God in Christ has forgiven you. And so that the love and the forgiveness that you have received from God in Christ are an illustration and an example for you of the love and forgiveness you are to extend to others. You can see that even more clearly in 5.1. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So you see that? He's, he's telling us to imitate God by our forgiveness. There, there's a real likeness between the forgiveness that we extend to others and the forgiveness that we have received from God. And of course, they're, they're alike in manner, but, but not in magnitude. This tweet from David Gunderson sums it up. He said, Forgive and you are imitating God, the great forgiver. Refuse and you're imitating Satan, the great accuser. Are you more like God or more like Satan? Just think about the privilege that you have to reflect the forgiveness of God by forgiving others. When you forgive like that, you are showing yourself to be one of God's children. Like father, like son. Like father, like daughter. You are one of God's beloved children. You see that there at the end of verse, at the end of verse one. Be imitators of God as beloved children. When you forgive like that, the world looks on and wonders. And when you forgive like that, you are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you forgive like that, you are proclaiming that you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul here isn't just saying forgive because you've been forgiven, but forgive like you've been forgiven. And the same holds true for love. In verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us. And so we are to walk in love in the same way that Christ loved us. You imitate the love of Christ when you walk in love. Jesus said in John 13, 34, 35, He said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now again, we've talked about this many times. This, this command here, the command to love, is not new. It goes all the way back to the, to the, the, to the Pentateuch, to the first books of the Bible. But Paul tells us, that it's not the, the command to love isn't new, but, but here we can see that it's the way, 
The just, I have just as I have loved you part that's new. Ephesians 5.2, that Christ gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God gave Christ, God in Christ gave himself up for us as a sacrifice to God the Father. He died for us. We're commanded, we're commanded to love one another. We're commanded to love one another. David Howson points out, I said this is, this is not a new commandment, he points out that, that the command to love one another, which originally is in Leviticus 19 verses 14 to 18, is contra contrasted with, with sinful anger. That of intentionally hurting helpless people, of, of unjust judgment, of character defamation, of physical harm, of inner hatred, of vengeance, of holding a grudge. So put off anger and put on love. And we're all called to sacrificial love, to, to love one another as God in Christ has loved us. Now you're probably not going to be called to literally die for something. But sometimes it might feel like it. You're called to die daily for others. We'll talk about that later in the, in the, in the coming weeks in the context of marriage. We're called to put the other's needs ahead of our own. That's what love is. Now everybody knows John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But do you know 1 John 3.16? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and so we are to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This is love. John describes what it looks like in verses 17 and 18. We read it in the call to worship. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And it's really easy to say the words, I love you. It's easy to say those words, but it's a lot harder to do it. It's also not just show occasional deeds of love, but it's to walk in love. Love is to characterize your life. It's to live the kind of way that Jesus lived, loving one another. I wonder, is there anyone that you need to ask forgiveness of for your failure to love them like that? You know, we often, well, it's more easy, more, more aware, we're more aware of times that we, that we commit sins of, of commission. We're talking here about sins of omission, when we, when we don't do the things that we do. I think we don't do the things that we should do. I wonder, are, are there ways that, that, that God is calling you to love one another sacrificially? And you fail to do that. You need to confess that to God. To ask forgiveness and then to walk in that love. So how do you stop sinful anger? Forgive like you've been forgiven. And love like you've been loved. Put off anger. Put on forgiveness. Put on love. Be an imitator of God. You can't do that unless God is at work in you. But if God is at work in you, you will do that. John Owen said that to suppose that whatever God requires of us, that we have the power of ourselves to, to do it, is to make the cross and grace of Christ of none effect. 
we try to do this in our own strength, we're saying we don't need the gospel. We're saying we don't need Jesus. But if God is truly at work in our hearts, that, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you that, that we read about so much in the first half of Ephesians. If that's really true, then you will put off sinful anger. You will love. You will forgive. Those who have experienced the love and forgiveness of God will demonstrate the love and forgiveness of God. As we close, I, I just wonder if, if you need to, to, to talk to God, if you need to confess something to Him, Now we're going to go down there in a few minutes and we're going to, to enjoy fellowship together. But we need to be very careful that the birds don't come and pluck those seeds that have been planted in your heart by the Holy Spirit. It's easy to, to face conviction and hear about these things and then to, to walk away and never think about these things again. The Holy Spirit is working in your heart and convicting you of this. You need to confess it to God. And if you sin against someone directly, you need to make it right. You need to confess to them. You need to ask forgiveness of them. Remember that we all fail. We all continually fail to forgive and to love as we should. But flee to Christ. Find forgiveness in Christ. Find love in Christ. And then freely extend that love and that forgiveness to one another. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness that we have received in Christ. We thank you for the love that we have received in Christ. Lord, I pray that in the power of your Spirit, for the building of your church, that you would enable us to, to give that love to others, to give that forgiveness to others. That you might get the glory that is due your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.